Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. I've got uh, two fabulous uh, ladies waiting in the wings uh, on the Coach's Corner panel this evening. Uh, it's an all-ladies panel, except for myself, of course. Um, and we're going to have a great discussion this evening. We've got some uh, interesting uh, topics to, to talk about. A little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by a PGA member uh, and head professional at Mark Croft Golf. Uh, those of you in the, in the business know who Mark Croft is from uh, Yuma, Arizona. Uh, very interesting story. He's been a golf professional for, uh, I think, uh, over 30 years, if not longer, and uh, had uh, had a very interesting uh, story uh, to share uh, on, on the air tonight, and I'm going to bring him on. Of course, we're going to talk some golf, as always, um, and I won't give everything away right now, but uh, I think you'll find his, his story very interesting and very inspiring, uh, to say the least, uh, considering what he's gone through. Um, Thank you, though, for joining us live here Thursday evenings, uh, every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. That's 7 uh, to 9 p.m. for those of you on the East Coast. And for those of you uh, way out west in the California area, that's 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, at Pacific Time. And quickest way to find us, go to blogtalkradio.com. Up in the search key, type Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the main page. And uh, we're always uh, glad you can join us live. But if for some reason you can't, radio.com forward slash golf talk live and just scroll down to the on demand section and uh, you will be able to view all of, and listen to all of the previously aired recorded, uh, uh, broadcasts that have been blogtalkradio.com network uh, if you want to speak to either myself or any of the guests at any time you're always welcome and encouraged to give us a call at area code 646-716-4667 and also uh, if you want to email me personally throughout the show or afterwards, uh, you're welcome to do so. Any comments or questions uh, about the program, uh, you can do so at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And if you're in the golf industry, whether you're a teacher professional, uh, an entrepreneur, or maybe you've written a, an interesting uh, book that you'd like to share on, on golf uh, on the program, I'd love to uh, set you up as a, as a featured guest, uh, which, of course, follows the Coach's Corner panel. And you can also email me, email me excuse me, at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Uh, update the program, of course, uh, regularly on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Facebook, of course, go to facebook.com forward slash golftalklive blog. Make sure you have blog on there. And I'm not sure, but Facebook looked like it was down a little bit uh, a while ago. I'm not sure if it's back up yet or not, but um, p- check periodically. And if you're there, visit uh, visiting the page, the Golf Talk Live blog page. Uh, please like uh, the page uh, while you're there if you get a chance. Uh, also, you can follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. That's CEO in capital letters. And thank you to both for the recent followers. Thank you very much, guys. Um, as I said, I got two great ladies. Uh, they've been on the show, uh, on the panel discussions before, but also as featured guests, uh, Michelle Tremarchi and Allison Kurt. Let me just tell you a little bit about both. Uh, Michelle, of course, is a PJ and LPJ Class A uh, professional. 
She's TPI certified and, and as a fitness professional, and she's also yoga certified as well as a yoga golf professional. Uh, also, a U.S. Kids certified instructor and a golf tip, uh, sorry, golf magazine has ranked her as one of the top 100 teachers in the Northeast region, and Golf for Women magazine uh, ranked her as uh, among the top 50 teachers in the country. And she's also a former bodybuilder, uh, competed uh, for a number of years. We were just actually talking a little bit about that uh, off, uh, off air here just a few minutes ago. And also joining her is uh, another uh, favorite and, and uh, frequent guest on the show as well, Allison Kurt. Allison is a PJ Master Professional in the Instruction as well as an LPJ Class A member, and is one of 11 women to achieve this highest uh, PJ credential earned by an instructor. Uh, she's been in the business for over 27 years of golf competition background, and has also recently played in three LPGA uh, Tour majors. She's earned the 2015 LPGA uh, Teacher and Club Professionals National, National Teacher of the Year honor, as well as the LPGA T- uh, TNCP, is for short, Western Section Teacher of the Year award in uh, 2012 and again in 2015 and uh, she also contributes to golf tips magazine uh, and will be featured five segments on the golf channel uh, throughout the year so make sure you stay tuned for that as well she's also currently the director at wood ranch golf club and is the assistant women's golf coach at california state university in uh, northridge uh, she currently practices a marriage and family therapist uh, registered intern while completing her doctorate degree in clinical psychology with an emphasis on sports psychology. Lots of great uh, uh, accolades there as well. Uh, ladies, welcome to Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Thank you for welcome. having us. <laughs> well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you guys were able to join. And, and as always, uh, ladies, I, I appreciate uh, you giving of your time. I know it's not always easy. Sometimes we've got to rush home from, from teaching on. Or, or working through different clinics and things like that. So, uh, and uh, you know, I always want to encourage people to have some family time. So, I appreciate you guys uh, giving of your time when you come on here. Um, what I want to talk about, ladies, is this. You know, we're we're already into the season now, in the 2016 season, uh, both on a professional level in golf, but also the amateurs are out there, you know, sort of whacking their way around the golf course. So I thought we would sort of break things down a little bit. I've, I've got some general points that we're going to discuss tonight. And uh, Allison, if it's all right, I'm going to start with you. Uh, the mm-hmm. first thing I want to talk about is is warming up. A lot of uh, you know coaches and, and teach professionals have said over the years that probably the best way to sort of warm up is is first with maybe some chipping uh, and pitching the ball. Do you agree with that still? Uh, and if you were to sort of put together uh, somebody's sort of practice or warm up routine. Uh, what would you start them off with? Well, I think, Ted, you know me, that I don't like to make any general statements where, mm-hmm. you know, this particular warm-up fits everybody. I am really just focused on customizing uh, for everybody. And so a warm-up for you is going to be different than a warm-up for Michelle and a and a warm-up right. for me. And so I think each student wants to find out what's their best way to warm up um, prior mm-hmm. to competition or prior to playing a recreational round. Um, and I think the components of warm-up need to include a, a physical component of getting the body ready to perform, but also a mental component of getting their brain ready to start thinking and activating in a particular way. So I personally like to start off students with um, some stretching and some dynamic warm-ups to get their body and their muscles ready, whether that's um, doing stuff that's non-golf related, getting their heart pumped up, doing some gentle stretching, getting the muscles that they're going to be using um, for the particular swing. I think that comes before they start hitting balls and pitching and chipping. 
Um, now, when they're on the practice facility and they're warming up their body for the swing, I, I definitely like the preference of starting with smaller swings and getting bigger, but that doesn't necessarily have to be through a chipping and a pitching motion. That could be merely with an eight iron taking some half swings um, to right. start to get their body warmed up. And, and I relate it to my students, like, if you were going to run a marathon, you wouldn't do an all-out sprint in mile number one. You'd kind of waste all your energy, and then you'd be, you'd be shot for the marathon. But to, uh, to warm up the body first and to kind of start slow and then work their way up. So generally, um, I train my students to start with smaller clubs, work their way up to the driver as being sort of the pinnacle of their warm-up mm-hmm. session, and then to cool down, um, finishing with maybe some, some putting or some smaller shots. Um, before they go out to the golf course. And then mentally getting engaged in the pre-shot routine early on in their warm-up session so that they're doing exactly what's going to happen on the golf course. They're preparing for it mentally on the practice range in their warm-up routine. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, developing a pre-shot routine in just a few moments. But, yeah, great point, uh, Allison. Thank you. Um, Michelle, I I want to just expand on that just a little bit because Allison raised an interesting point. Um, There's really – sort of two differences. I mean, obviously you have your general warm up before you go out and play around and then you might have sort of a full practice session, which is obviously going to be a little bit more involved in that. Um, but let's say you only, you know, as many amateurs do, they, they sort of arrive at the golf course, literally if they're lucky 20 minutes before they're about to play around. So they don't have a lot of time. If you're going to advise um, some of your students to make, you know, sort of get the biggest bang for their buck, if you will, uh, with a warm-up session with very little time before they actually play the round, where are you going to guide them uh, and, and what are you going to instruct them to to really focus on with a short amount of time? Um, mostly, I actually encourage them to, to warm up before they get to the uh, to the course. You know, even if they can do, you know, most of my members have gyms in their uh, houses. So to get on, like, the, the bicycle or the elliptical just to get their blood going and get the blood going into the system so that they're getting looser for just even five or ten minutes on that and then to do their stretching before they get to the course because you're right most of our members don't have a lot of time but a couple uh, swings and they want to go and then they get injured because they haven't prepared the body just like allison said um and if you're if you're talking about a quick stretch without anything, I have a lot of stretches I have on the cart itself that they can do on the cart uh, as opposed to any, I mean, if that would be like a quick warm-up, like you said, without going through the whole process of little swings and chipping and pitching and, and then having their driver in their hand and then off they go. So um, I, I try to get them prepared before they even get to the golf course. Yeah, and and I, I think any time they can take advantage of the time before they're heading out to the golf course. Now, obviously, depending on the distance they're traveling, if it's um, you know a short distance, then that that's a great thing. But if they're you know going to do a warm up and then sit in the car for thirty five forty minutes, they're kind of cooling down a little bit. Um, how do you decide? It? And the next point I want to up, and, and Allison, I'm going to jump back to you here real quick. Um, you know, we often say, well we want them to sort of practice the important stuff. How do we decide? Because as you pointed out uh, in your first comment, uh, everybody is different. You know, I'm different from you. You're different from me and, and so on and so forth. How do we decide? How do we help the students decide 
what's the important stuff that they should be focusing? Well, you you use the right um, words, having the student decide what's important to them. And so if they feel that uh, they really want to dial in their driver before heading out or they've noticed um, a pattern in their past couple of practice routines that uh, the driver maybe is a little bit off and they want to get that sort of fine-tuned, then that's obviously going to be important to them in that particular round. Um, so I think helping the student decide is, is looking at, okay, what kind of skills are you going to need for this particular round, um, and what's the best way to warm up your body for that, whether it is focusing maybe on some 30-yard putts because you know that the greens are really, really big, and proximity to the hole might be a bit longer, so let's do some longer putts to get warmed up with feeling that lag or feeling that we're going to get that long putt closer to the hole. I think it also changes every round and every golf course, too. I mean, I know for me, being a player, there are times where I know on a golf course I'm going to hit more five irons. So in my practice routine, warming up, I might focus a bit more on just a couple of five irons, whether it's off of the tee or off of the ground, to prepare me for that given round. So I like to ask the student uh, questions as far as what is important to them, what are the areas that they want to highlight prior to heading out to their round, and what are the areas that they want to feel most confident about prior to heading out to their round. And, of course, we get an array of different answers based on what the student's preference is. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, Michelle, I want to ask you, um, because I know that you um, work at a facility up in New Jersey um, that has a, a membership. Do you encourage them um, when you're working with students that they should play with better players? And if so, why? Yes, I believe that it brings their game to a different level, even though they may fight me on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but once they do get to play with a better player, they feel that they play better. And then when they go and they play with somebody that is at a different level, maybe a maybe you would say a new, newer golfer than where they're at, they can definitely see the differences where they would lay back um, right. and not focus as much as opposed to almost playing out of their comfort zone when you're playing with a better player and shooting a much better round than they've ever shot before just because they're – and a lot of them are learning, which is great because they're learning from the better player, so – just by watching them and playing with them, they're learning a lot as they go along. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with that. I've always, you know, that's what I've always done for myself personally. You know, when I was younger, I would always, um, the particular courses that I played back home, uh, I knew the pros very, very well. And this is, of course, when I was in my teenage years. And I would always say, you know, who are the better players, you know, in, in the in the lineup today? And they would say, well, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. And I said, are they you know, if there is a room for me to jump in and I would always uh, try to jump in with a, you know, either a twosome or a threesome uh, of better players um, just because it, it did certainly help to elevate my game. Um, and, you know, if for, for whatever reason, you know, I wasn't sort of playing up to snuff that particular day, you know, I would, what I classify as, is playing ready golf. In other words, you know, I was always ready for all of my shots and, you know, if I was struggling um, at that particular time, then, you know, I would pick up a ball. You know, I wasn't really concerned about score as I was about developing sound fundamentals and that. And I certainly didn't want to hold that group up. So you have to be mindful of that, I think, as well, 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you're playing with a better player, you don't want to uh, – because because on the flip side, sometimes better players don't want to, you know, play with a newer golfer because of that. They're worried about that. It's, you know, it's going to slow them down. It's going to get them out of their rhythm. Um, so it's probably more advantageous for the, the you know, less uh, – you know, new, the newer golfer, rather – um, it's more of a, a, a step up for him or her than it is the other way around. But um, Allison, I want to come back to you because you, you mentioned this, and I think this uh, would be a great way to, to start this. Uh, I know that you've, you've played, uh, as you mentioned, uh, or as I mentioned in the opening credits, um, on uh, in a number of majors uh, on the LPJ Tour, uh, but you've also played other uh, events throughout the years. Um, developing a, a solid pre-shot routine, uh, obviously it's a very important thing to do. Um, you obviously have a routine for yourself. How do we get, I mean, again, everything's sort of individualized and unique for each person that has to be different, but is there sort of a general formula that you try to put together? Uh, and then if they want to add an extra waggle or two, that's up to them, but do you try to encourage them and what do you encourage them to, to focus on? I think for the pre-shot routine, the components that need to be included are an element of alignment. Um, an element of some sort of rehearsal, whether it's a rehearsal move, um, which could be considered a practice swing or something that triggers the body ready ready to go. And then there must be a, a, com- a commitment to the shot. So that could be like a moment of silence where visualization is included. Um, it could be some sort of cue or trigger that uh, psychologically the the player uses in order to get them ready for the shot. So I like to explain the different components that I prefer to see in pre-shot routines. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we sort of build it and customize it for the students. So the sequencing of it may be different per student. I like to time the length of the pre-shot routine so that students get into a habit of having the same components over and over uh, and making sure that it's in a timely fashion. Um, what we see is that the longer a player stands over a golf ball or the longer that they take to engage in the shot, that that oftentimes leads into poor performance because there's more opportunity for the mind to get involved to start analyzing and assessing and judging. And so to find like that sweet spot for the student, whether it's from 13 seconds to 22 seconds, um, that they can engage in every single time that includes the elements of, you know, the alignment and the rehearsal swing and then the commitment to the shot. Um, I think that's the best way to build it. And so it's definitely skill-based, you know, showing them what does alignment look like from behind the golf ball? What does a rehearsal swing look like for you if you're working on a pressure, uh, pressure shift in your feet? Let's have that be a part of the rehearsal point. If you're finished, is what you're focusing on. Let's have that be a part of the rehearsal point. And then taking that moment to visualize what would a good shot look like here. Um, Do you see it going out straight? Can you add some sort of visualization to the golf ball like it's um, extending out on a bright yellow line as you see the golf ball fly out to the hole? Adding in that commitment to seeing what a good shot would look like and then Mm -hmm. stepping into the shot and executing it with uh, less mental interference as possible. Yeah, and and well said, by the way. Um, You know, the other thing, too, that you you raised an interesting point about standing over the ball too long. Uh, The first person that comes to mind uh, on the men's tour, of course, was Sergio Garcia. 
Um, he was criticized for that about uh, about four or five years ago, I believe, on tour because he was, um, and this of course was not necessarily during his pre-shot routine, but this was actually over the ball, ready to hit a shot. Um, you know, he would regrip and 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 so forth multiple times to the point it became a, a joke uh, with many of the fans. And and this is this can definitely happen to anybody, even uh, you know, particularly a novice player that gets very nervous especially playing on a golf course where there's a lot of members or a lot of uh, players out on the course, they get very uh, agitated. Um, Michelle, what do you try to do when you're helping somebody sort of step into their pre-shot routine uh, to sort of guide them in an area, as, as Allison has just talked about? What do you try to do to, to really encourage them? Um, to, sort of first off, to have a pre-shot routine, because there's a lot of them out there that don't. And I think we both are, we would all probably agree with that. There's a lot of players out there um, especially amateurs that don't have a pre-shot routine or not a consistent one. So we obviously have to build a consistent one, but what are some things, Michelle, that you do with some of your members uh, and, and students? Um, I try to, uh, same thing, uh, start from behind the ball and make make it like a practice box. You know, you're practicing, mm-hmm. you're rehearsing the swing you want to, Usually what you're working on in your golf swing, I usually give them one, maybe two thoughts that they're working on, no more than that. And so they're kind of they're feeling it, they're rehearsing the swing, they're analyzing the lie uh, as far as the tee box or whatever the lie, wherever you are, visualizing the shot, feeling the ground. And then I can incorporate the breathing into that. So mm-hmm. whether it's a higher handicap, just like you said, it's a lot of people, they just stand there frozen. So creating a waggle, you know, getting them to move and to breathe to try to get them out of that frozen mode so that we can create flow. So, um, I'm, you know, so we're breathing behind the ball, we're breathing as we set up to the ball, and then we're breathing it out before we go. So there's kind of a technique that I use for higher handicaps as opposed to lower handicaps when we go through the breathing exercises. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, might hear that and say, well, of, you know, of course I breathe, you know, I, I, you know, that's how I survive. But there, there is really a technique to it. A lot of people don't understand that, that breathing does affect how you play. Um, it, it obviously helps keep, uh, keep you a little calmer uh, out in the golf course. A lot of the professionals, you'll, you'll see them, um, you know, that they'll be very, when they're very agitated, you can almost tell that they're breathing at a much more rapid pace. Um, they're not as relaxed and they're very, you know what I'm saying? So they're very nervous and agitated. So, so breathing and, and using those breathing techniques as you talk about is certainly very important, I think. And that's uh, something that should be incorporated as well into pre-shot routine. Yes. And the, yes. And you're right. Their breathing is different than us just sitting here breathing. <laughs> it's, right. It's whole, right. Exactly. It's trying to get all the, the air out of the diaphragm and it's just, it's a technique, you know, breathing in through your nose and out through your nose. You know, we're normally we're taught to breathe in and then out through the the mouth. So, right. Um, and then you you know you kind of go to the tennis players and and the other athletes when they're making a grunt or a sound when they're hitting the tennis ball. That's just the exhale that's coming out, so that you're getting the energy and the tension out of the body, so that you can create energy through. Right. So, you know. I just want to. Exactly. Uh, just a follow-up question, Allison, on, on the pre-shot routine um, aspect of things, um, because I know that you've played in, in competitive golf. Was there ever a time that you got out of your routine? Um, what did you do to get your 
yourself back mentally back in into uh, that that sort of rhythm and flow again of, of your pre-shot routine before you're playing. Well, it's interesting as I look at my path of 27 years of playing from being a junior golfer to a high schooler to a college player to uh, to now professional, and there was a period of time where. I had a routine, but I didn't even know that it's what it was called. And right. I think back in the, uh, in the 90s when a lot of the books by Dr. Bob Rotella and Dr. Mm-hmm. Joe Parent were coming out, they were starting to put terms and labels to what a pre-shot routine was. I think at that point is when I really started to fine-tune for myself um, what components I needed to include into a pre-shot routine and then how I wanted it to look. And I was able to fine-tune that in college when – uh, my collegiate team had an opportunity to work with a sports psychologist. And so then I sort of learned what are the actual benefits of why I'm doing this routine. And and I would say from from late high school and early college on to my play today, I don't think that there's a shot that I've ever hit where I haven't gone through my pre-shot routine. It's just so natural to me. It's like getting up right. in the morning and brushing your teeth. Like you just you, you usually just don't forget that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's so embedded in my system now that I, I don't get out of it. It is just part of it. Now, um, to answer your question, there are times where I am more engaged in my pre-shot mm-hmm. routines, and there are some times where I get hijacked from from my routine. And so I would say the times that I get hijacked are when I start to let my thoughts wander and they start to right. get into a place where I am thinking about outcome or assessment or judgment of how the shot shot might look. Um, There are times, too, when I may have gotten hijacked by how my body has felt, whether it's filled with tension or it starts to get a little bit shaky. And then if I'm not able to control my mind and where I want to redirect my attention, then even though I'm going through the motions of the pre-shot routine, I'm not actually using it to my benefit to help me get into a peak performance state. So I can definitely tell after I hit a shot, I'll know right away you know what, I didn't use my pre-shot routine correctly to my benefit. And it'll just right. be a reminder after the shot has already been struck, okay, the next time I hit this shot or any shot, I really need to follow my steps and I need to get more involved in the process. And I think it ends up coming to that for a lot of players is that the distraction factor ends up being more of the outcome of what's right. going to happen. And so they lose <clears throat> sight of the actual process. Um, a lot of the players that I coach, I, I – strive to encourage them to find comfort in their pre-shot routine. Like use that as the place to find your comfort before executing the shot um, with breathing and with having such an embedded routine that it allows you to be at a really calm place before executing. Do you think another time, Allison, just very quickly, and then, then we'll move on, um, that players, especially at, at a tour level, uh, might get derailed from their pre-shot routines is in a in a moment where they've maybe strung a few bad shots together or even a bad hole. Um, that is a time too. I think that a lot of players can kind of get derailed um, when they actually should be the opposite. They should be more focused on on getting back to to square one, if you will. Is that a time? Do you think that some players uh, can get derailed very easily? Is is when they've had a bad hole or two or a bad shot? Most certainly, that can be quite motivating to want to start doing something different. If, you know, you've strung together three or four shots, and then in hindsight, you look back and be like, well, was I really committed to those? And now all of a sudden, I'm a bogey, and that, you know, is putting me in a different position in the tournament. It comes down to self-discipline. Every single shot that you stand over 
how disciplined can you be to engage in your pre-shot routine and be fully committed and focused to hitting the shot? Um, so absolutely, I believe it can derail players. And then very quickly, if they get back into their routine and they use it to their benefit, they'll be able to recover a, a bit more quickly. Right. And I think that's where a good caddy comes in hand, handy too, is uh, to be able to, to monitor that as well and, and say, hey, wait, you know, what the heck's going on here? You're, you're not in your routine. Um, and would you agree with that as well? Most certainly. And I think there's been some interesting experiences on television that we've been able mm-hmm. to see where some of that has, has happened. I mean, I think the Masters is probably a really good learning point for a lot of amateurs to see when the best players in the world get out of their routine. Um, right. Take Jordan Spieth, for example, with um, the couple of balls that he hit in the water, that mm-hmm. if, if you look at the timing of his routine compared to other shots that he hit very, very well, if you look at the communication, if you look at his body language, it was clearly and significantly different than the shots that he was hitting closer in proximity to the hole. So right. even the best players in the world still get derailed, and having that caddy can definitely be of use um, when it comes to being remindful of how do I get back into this routine and, and can we calm down for a second and, and re-engage. Right, and it's an extra set of eyes as well. I mean, they, they obviously are observing their players, and uh, – they know that the rhythm that their player is normally in when they're playing well. And when they see them kind of getting, you know, doing some funky things out in the golf course, they usually have a good sense that there's something not right here. Um, Michelle, I want to bring you back in here uh, on, on a different topic here. Uh, you know, a lot of players, especially, and I'm talking about the amateurs here now, uh, play uh, the par fives uh, sometimes to avoid that big number. And I'm talking about a bogey, double bogey and so forth. Um, we have to encourage them to sort of play away from that big number. In other words, not be as aggressive on those holes. Um, normally, that's a, an opportunity for certainly the better players to be able to capitalize, but there's still, uh, you know, some of our, our less than stellar, uh, you know, amateurs out there that so for some reason still draw, um, you know, an eight on a par five. Um, what are some things that you try to do with your students if you know that they're not very, um, you know, capable at this particular time what do you do to to get them not to play as aggressively in other words what do you do to to help them avoid hitting those big numbers well first i try to talk about personal par you know everyone has a personal par so everybody's so hung up on um the scorecard and it's a par five and i have to get a par five on the on the par five i get a five and a par five so i try to take their handicap um you know, obviously, if it's uh, more or less, you know, an 18 handicap, you know, we're trying to bogey every hole, you sure. know, or double bogey, or double or double par, depending on what their level of play is. So we we're kind of changing that par so that it's realistic. And so if we can make it a realistic on what they're trying to shoot within themselves, then they're more apt to stay consistent with their game. In other words, I, I teach a lot of men that try to go for a lot of this stuff, like you said, in the part right. fives. They're, they're hitting three woods, and they're hitting, you know, trying to get there in three when they should be just hitting a seven iron. And like I always say, if if a guy can hit a, a, an iron 120 yards three times in two putt, they're playing bogey golf just as well as a lady if she's hitting it 100 yards three times in two putting. 
basically she's playing bogey golf. So it kind of right. puts in perspective that you're not always trying to hit the driver and hit it as far as you can. We're just trying to put things in perspective. So it's your personal par. Um, right. Which makes things more realistic and they play better. So it takes the pressure off because I get so many people trying to hit the par threes and one, and it's just not realistic. It's just not who they are, their level of play. So they have to work around that so that they're getting the results they're looking for and not getting discouraged. Right, and I think that goes goes back to you know what we talked about earlier when you know practicing sort of the important stuff. Um, and Allison, you, you know, you touched on this at the very beginning as well. You know, you sort of work at the other end of the the club selection as opposed to starting with the driver. And a lot of amateurs, you know, the first club out of their bag is they're pulling the, the driver or they might hit a couple of wedges and then right away they're, you know, sort of, um, you know, hitting maybe one or two shots with a couple of other clubs. And again, right away they're to the driver on the, on the practice tee. And the problem with that is they're really, you know, doing it in reverse. They should be practicing the, the shorter clubs and, and certainly putting um, a little bit more. Um, playing away from those big numbers uh, again, what do you do to, with your students and, and when you're coaching to help them avoid that? Obviously, you're, you're coaching at, at a, a higher level uh, than some out there, but when you do get some high handicap amateurs um, you know, across from you and you're talking to them, what do you try to do to encourage them to, to say, hey, look, this is, yeah, it's a par five, but your ability doesn't, you know, doesn't fit. Um, let's try this instead. What are some things that you try to do to help them sort of avoid those big numbers? Well, I think avoiding the big numbers is more about the management of their own game, not necessarily their ability. And I like to prefer, refer it to more skill set because I, I don't really know what their potential could right. be. So let's take a look at their current skill set. Um, I'm actually also from – the perspective that I want them to try to get as close to the green as possible as quickly as possible because mm-hmm. statistics say that proximity to the hole is what ends up scoring lower. So there is sort of like this old-fashioned belief of laying up on a par five. But right. statistics say that you from 100 yards are going to have a lower chance of getting it closer to the hole than me at 40 yards. And so there's a really great book that kind of explains that by Dr. Mark Brody called Every Shot Counts that I recommend a lot of uh, a lot of amateurs and instructors read because it's going to change the way that you teach and the way that you manage the golf course. So when I talk a little bit statistically to students about, you know, it's not going to certainly serve you to lay up with, let's say, to your 100-yard shot because guess what, from 100 yards, you're telling me that sometimes it takes you four shots just to get it in the hole. So why don't we get you a little bit closer to the green and let's see what we can do from there. And so, again, managing what kind of hazards there might be. I mean, obviously it's a really tight hole and there's a bunch of water. I'm certainly not going to encourage them to get as close as possible. But looking at what's within their skill set, I certainly don't want them to ever hold back. I want them to always be moving forward and always be aggressive and assertive on the golf course. Um, So I like to look at their club selection. I like to look at how they're approaching the hole, where they're attempting to place the golf ball. Are they looking at the hole um, from a, from a perspective of where they want to end up for their closest shot to the green, or are they Mm -hmm. only looking at their shot right in front of them? You know, I think that's important that um, certainly helps in practice rounds that you have for the golf course that you're very familiar with. 
uh, you sort of mm-hmm. map out the course, but I want them to map out the whole before even teeing up on that par five. Okay, let's talk about what kind of clubs we want to have in our hand. Maybe you're really good at the nine iron, and we can advance your golf ball on that second shot to get you to a nine iron position, and that's the best that we can do. Great, let's go with your skill set there. Um, so I think that there is, again, it's going to be different for everybody, but sure. eliminating, eliminating the big numbers I think oftentimes comes from, from people laying up to 100 yards, and then from 100 yards they still incur four or five shots, partly because right. their short game skill set may not be as, as fine-tuned. Well, and I think you hit it on the head, too, is I think really course management. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at uh, a player like Jack Nicholas. You know, he, he certainly was not the best wedge player, um, you know, in, in, certainly by today's standards. But he knew how to manage his way around the golf course. He knew how to navigate um, shot by shot. And he did exactly what you're talking about. You know, he put himself in position that he knew he was going to have and create the best opportunity to score. And that's really about is to create the best opportunity that you're going to be able to score on five, three or four. Um, and I think that a lot of the amateurs, as you said, some of them probably are laying back a little bit, playing a little bit too conservative, and maybe they should be a little bit more aggressive. And then you have others that are just, you know, hitting everything under the sun and, and just don't have the, the skill set to be able to, uh, to pull it off. And then it just, of course, adds to the frustration. Um, Michelle, one of the other things, too, that I think um, that I want to talk about a little bit is sort of that one shot at a time. Um, you know, most of the professionals that you, you know, you talk to, um, they're certainly going to visualize as, as Allison just talked about, you know, what they need to do for that hole where they need to put themselves. But when they're in the moment, they're focusing on the shot that that's at hand. Um, that's something that amateurs have a difficult time with. They're they're They've got too many thoughts going in. How do you set them up um, for success? Um, and, and looking at that particular shot, the shot that they've got right now, whether it be a nine iron, seven iron or three wood, um, how do you get them engaged and focused on just that one shot for now? Um, I always, uh, the first thing first is I always talk about the lie, um, especially our tee boxes where we're at are all lined up to the trees or wherever, That's just, and they're all slanted, so we have a lot of unevenness to our golf course. There's no, nothing that's flat. So I really try to, have them zone in on that first and then obviously you're talking about one shot at a time and not getting Mm -hmm. ahead of yourself and just staying in the present moment um but again you discover the lie and then set up to the lie and then hit it and then obviously if they hit it bad, like you said earlier, where they're getting discouraged and stuff, and they can just let that round instead of just flushing it and um, taking deep breaths and then coming back to the the next shot and trying to recover. So it's not always the end of the world if you're hitting a bad shot. You just have to think about the next shot and the next shot and not think about the score itself at the end or trying to shoot a number. It's just about taking it one shot at a time and then adding the score up at the end. Right. Um, Allison, what about what about you when you're out playing in that and you're sort of focusing on on the the, the present? Um, what do you do to prevent a lot of outside distractions coming in? And you focus and zero in on the ta- specific task at hand. What do you do for yourself? 
and what do you do with your students that uh, help them to, to navigate that way as well? Part of my own work has been through the practice of meditation and mindfulness, and I think that's where the, mm-hmm. the strength in having a stronger mind can be cultivated. Um, I never attempt to block out anything because blocking out is more of a defensive negative position. So I like to look at it and reframe it more as where do I direct my attention? Because let's be honest, we're going to have distractions. We can either distract ourselves just with our own emotions and things going on on the inside. And then there's going to be external distractions as well from playing partners and noises and sounds. So if I'm putting energy into blocking out all of that stuff, it's actually taking energy away for me trying right. to put my attention to a more productive motion. So in my, in my extra time, I sort of cultivate my skill set through meditation and mindfulness. And so when I'm on the golf course, I have a better ability to focus on my senses in the present moment and to become more process-focused versus outcome-focused. So even just hitting, uh, let's say, a stock seven iron into a green, I may be distracted with um, what's going on around me, um, some of the logical or analytical thoughts going on in my mind, and those could be all distractions. So for me, I really try to get into my senses. What's the grip feel like in my hand right now? What does my foot feel like on the ground as I step to the golf ball right now? Where do my eyes want to be diverted onto the golf ball? Which dimple in particular right now? And so as I'm doing that sequentially, there's no room for that other stuff to even come into my awareness because I'm filling my awareness with things that I want that are very productive and process-oriented. So I think that's what I do for myself. And, and again, I use that to help coach my students. I will train them, like, on the golf course through through some guidance. You know, what do you hear right now? Can you hear the birds right now? Okay. Can you now hear the wind sort of coming across your cheeks? Which cheek do you feel the sun hitting most? And as they start to train their attention to where I'm guiding them, they get the sense of like, all right, I can really be in control of this. When I'm standing over a shot, I can be looking at the water in front of me or I can notice how my feet feel grounded. I can notice how that grip feels in my hand. Um, And I think those are a bit more relaxing techniques because you're in your body and your attention is being directed to where you want it to go versus allowing yourself to be filled up with stuff that's not helpful. Right. So essentially you're shifting the focus into positive as opposed to negative. And a lot of players, um, you know, high handicap players, you know, will come up to hole and as you say, you know, there's maybe water down the left and, you know, bunkers surrounding the green and they're focusing on, um, you know, all of the trouble instead of focusing on something um, you know, like you said, uh, having their feet grounded or the grip, maybe, uh, you know, feeling the grip pressure, um, you know, or something along that lines uh, is essentially what you're saying, correct? Absolutely. And, in fact, you know, when they get up to the tee box and they have an awareness of the water left and maybe out of bounds right and they start bringing their attention to it, I would say, I don't even see that. I see the mm-hmm. grass in the middle. I see the spot where my golf ball wants to go. Like, I'm looking and focusing my attention on places where I want the ball to go, not where I don't want it to go. And that's really, in, in layman's terms, that's really the difference between, um, and certainly not all the difference, but one big difference between the professionals and the amateurs tend to look um, 
professional look. Is that sorry? That was for you, Allison. Yeah, sorry, cut out there a little bit. I missed your question because <laughs> the, uh, the line um, cut out. Ba- ba- <clears throat> yeah, ba- you know, essentially the difference between the, the amateur the amateurs will um, the focus is the professional focus where they want to be. Which I basically alluded to earlier. I'm not sure if you got again. Ted, are you still there? situation where um, you're not sure how to handle it, you want to have sort of that that go-to shot or safety shot. Um, How do you put that together and how do you help your students work on that? Oh, and I'm not sure. We might have lost both. (laughs) Oh, can can you guys hear me all right? Ted, I can hear you now. It cut out there for a minute, but I can Uh, hear you now. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I lost both of you there for a second. Yeah, it's cut cut now. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm sorry about that. I'm not sure what that was about. Um, Michelle, my question was to you was uh, sort of developing a safety shot. You know, everybody sort of has a a go-to shot in times of trouble. Um, Do you have a go-to shot that you have, and and do you work with your students and helping them to develop a shot? Uh, in moments of, of, uh, of, I won't say trouble, but a shot that they can count on, they can depend on um, when they're faced with some adversity on the golf course? Um, I usually try to work with a punch shot just because it's more uh, controlled and, um, re- you know, more compact, so less can go wrong. Um, I start there. Or I'm working with more of just taking more club and swinging less so you're not uh, trying to kill it and try to get their tempo so that it's more consistent and um, balanced. But uh, normally this is a punch shot, just trying to be more three-quarters and um, keeping it that way. I mean, when things go wrong, just to get it to a little tighter and more uh, so the margin of error of misses are much more controllable. Mm. Um, Allison, what about you? What about you? Um, do you have a sort of a go-to shot, a safety shot, if you will, um, that you can count on uh, in, in a difficult situation? And do you try to encourage your your students that you're working with to, to have a, that sort of a go-to shot when needed? Yeah, I call it a stock shot. So I like them to know like what their stock swing and their stock shot is for um, the particular clubs in their bag. And so. I, I would say that, you know, I have a stock feel as far as tempo and power percentage, and let's say that um, on a scale of 0 to 100 is maybe like 70%, so that's sort of like a comfort range for a stock 7 iron. I know how far it's going to carry. I know how far it's going to roll out, and so when I get into maybe a tense or a pressure field situation, then I can sort of revert back to that feeling um, with that sort of power meter as well and know that that's my stock shot. Um, and then I think from there, um, really coaching students to know um, the clubs that they feel the most confident with. So mm-hmm. if they're ever in a situation um, and they know that, hey, when I pull out that seven iron, 
gosh, I'm so successful with that, and I have a long confidence <clears throat> resume with it. So if I ever get into a moment of adversity on the golf course, I know that I can always go to that contingency plan for my stock 7-iron or whatever club that might be. Um, and I think sometimes, too, when we find adversity on the golf course, if we have the, the go-to shot, you know, uh, like I call it their, their stock shot, it gives them a feeling of comfort where they can start to really boost their self-esteem so that they don't fall off track um, and, and really start this whole uh, bogey train moving forward. They can go to that comfort level, hit a successful shot, feel good about it, build their confidence back up, and then get back on track uh, for the rest of the golf course. So I don't necessarily have like a particular uh, mechanism, whether it's like a punch or um, a particular technique, but I like to use it in terms of power. And for me, that's right at about 70% of power. Right. Well said. Um, Michelle, what about uh, equipment? Obviously, you deal with a lot of members as well at your course up, up in New Jersey. Uh, and, you know, there are some purchase new equipment, um, new set of golf clubs and that sort of thing. Obviously, you want to encourage them to buy equipment that's suited for their game uh, and not just because it's the latest and greatest thing playing out in the PGA or the LPGA Tour. Um, what do you do to, to work, again, work with your students uh, and with your, your members um, to make sure that they're getting the, the best fit for their game and not just buying something because they you know, uh, watch something on tour and, and are sort of mesmerized by the latest technology out there? How do you sort of keep them grounded and, and making sure that they're making a good selection? And I know it's not always easy, especially for the men. I can guarantee it. They're always looking to upgrade to the best, you know, what they think is the best driver on the market. But obviously there's a process that goes through that. What do you try to do with your members? Yeah, well, now they're, yeah, now they're wanting to do the uh, their clubs the same size because that's the new trend now. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's the question now. And when I put all my clubs at the same length because of um, the tour player that's out there that's doing that. So, right. no, but I, I think, um, you know, you can fit for compensation compensation or you can fit for correction and so i always uh, believe fitting for correction is better than compensation so it's it's about having you know fixing or things in their swing and then allowing the club to, to enhance what we're working on as opposed to somebody that has clubs that are too long or too short and they're taking a lot of lessons and then by the time they leave the lesson tee, they're going to go right back to that piece of equipment and work around that improper piece of equipment. So I'm real adamant, especially with ladies that come to my to the tee, they're always getting the hand-me-downs from the husbands or sure. or just, you know, or they're, some ladies, you know, I always say if they're not falling into that 5'4 size, they're not going to fit into a lady's standard. So I may get a lady that's 5'8", and she's athletic, and she's going to go buy the ladies. She's going to go to the store, and they may give her a ladies set because she's a lady. So they're not really looking at her whole... Um, Abil- her abilities. Uh, abilities and her uh, make, you know, you know, her body and, and everything. So I, it's... Um, you know, it's 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 a lot of education and educating the students and to help them understand that. So that's the first thing I do, especially when I get that lady that's real athletic that's going to be probably swinging a shaft that is much stronger than a lady's shaft. 
Right. And when you're fitting, you know, you're not just fitting labels. You're not fitting ladies, seniors, men's. We're just trying to figure the right swing speed that matches the mm-hmm. shaft. And so I think that's the biggest component is that, is getting the swing speed and the, and the shaft matched. And then kind of going from there, there's, there's a lot of different variables. But custom fit, sure. it's just like I always say, if you're going to get, you know, a dress, you know, normally if we're getting – going to get a dress, you know, usually it's going to be tailored, or a guy's going to get a suit, he's going to get tailored, so, and the other yeah, and you, thing would be to, you know, if you're walking, let's say you're, you're size 8, but you're walking in a size 10, you're going to learn how to walk in that eventually, that size sure. 10, but then how how are you going to walk in the long term, so it's just like equipment, it's right. and, I, and I think it's thing I look at. Yeah, and I and I think Allison, you'd agree it's important that they get fitted properly, um, not just the size, but obviously, you know, as as um, Michelle alluded to as well, is with the shaft. I mean, a lot of players, and again, I'm going to use sort of throw men under the bus here. I think women are much more uh, savvy shoppers. I think they're smarter shoppers than men are. Men, of course, you know, they say, well, if so and so can, you know, play the stiffer shaft or can play, you know, um, you know, the uh, forged club face. Um, you know, I should be able to do it as well. And that's not always the case. Obviously, we have to look at their ability um, as a player. Um, what are some things that you try to do with, with your students when they're in the market for, for getting new clubs? What are some questions that you might ask them or, or steps that you might take before they, they go out and spend that money? One of the things that have helped me greatly recently is my investment in a launch monitor. So now I'm able to really measure and not have to use subjective um, impressions about what kind of equipment to use. I can now measure scientifically right. what's going to be the best fit for them. And so I think that's really helped me look at my club fitting a bit differently um, is knowing, you know, exactly how many miles per hour they tend to swing and what their path tends to be and what their face angle tends to be. And then, as Michelle said, sort of fitting for correction, not fitting for compensation. I'm a big believer of that too. And so when we're looking at um, at the player, take away gender, let's look at their size, let's look at their swing mm-hmm. speed, let's look at their tendencies and put the equipment that fits best for them. Um, moving away from that la- the labels, I like how you mentioned that, Michelle, is let's move away from the labels of senior flex. Let's move away from the labels of ladies' length. Let's just put the equipment that fits your swing and your body, whatever color, whatever look that might be, um, so that you can swing the golf club to the best of your ability. And I think that um, I, I asked them, would they ever buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first? And most people say no. They say, well, don't right. get equipment without trying it out first. And so to have a educated perspective as far as what they're looking for, and a lot of people just don't even know what they're looking for. They don't know the, the science of the golf club. They don't really know some of the different terms. So I like to share that with them so that they can make their own best educated decision. Um, Having a really thorough interview process about their equipment and their process of selecting the equipment is very helpful in me so I can tailor um, what kind of things that they might be looking for. Yeah, and I think even for, you know, a lot of times you might get a uh, literally a a beginner golfer that doesn't want to make a a huge investment. They're not even sure, you know, how much they're going to play, but they, you know, they certainly want to uh, you know, want to make that investment in getting their own um, equipment. Um, but with the ability or with the availability of, of different options out there to, to get equipment, 
you can certainly work within the, just about any budget out there. But I still think regardless of how much they spend, um, and, and you can get what I call a beginner set. You know, everybody thinks they have to have 14 clubs in their bag. Well, that's not true. Um, you know, a beginner golfer could maybe start out with half of that, but it's a matter of picking the right clubs um, that's going to meet their needs out in the golf course. Because really, there's a lot of players that go out there, uh, even some better players that don't use more than half of their golf bag. So, you know, if somebody's on, on a budget, um, you know, you can, as you uh, talked about, uh, Allison, you know, you can do an assessment with the launch monitor and, and other, uh, you know, more intense sessions, get an idea of, and a flavor of how they play uh, and, and just sort of put together a beginner set. And then as they progress and, and develop uh, as time goes on, then, you know, they can look to, to always add to their, to their uh, collection, if you will. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I see, and again, especially for men, is they just they sort of get caught in the marketing bubble, and uh, they see you know the, whatever's hot in the golf magazine. Well, that's what I need my golf bag, and they don't really put any thought or or questions in. And once they buy it, it it's you know it's not a very satisfactory uh, purchase. Swung it a few times because it's not properly fitted for their to suit their needs. Uh, or their game, and uh, ultimately end up, you know, having buyer's remorse. And, uh, you know, so that's something that I think as professionals that we can help them with. Um, ladies, I want to thank you very much. It's been kind of interesting to get some different perspectives on uh, on really, um, you know, questions that I think that a lot of amateurs have. You know, we, we've talked about here many times over the years uh, on the show about how to fix certain aspects of the game, but there's really, you know, some of the questions that I – put forth tonight that a lot of amateurs really struggle with they don't understand they you know they still struggle with that pre-shot routine they don't really understand the importance of having it and i look at the the players on tours uh, again whether it be pj or lpj tour and sort of look at well that's you know they need to do that because of the level they're at i don't really need to do that and that's certainly not true correct ladies i'd agree yes yeah yeah, like like Allison said, it's all individual. You know, everyone's going to have their own um, structure within a fundamental pre-shot routine, and they they kind of make it their own as long as it's the same every time. Right. Exactly. Are, yeah. So everyone's exactly. unique in that, in that respect. We just have to find it for them. <laughs> exactly. So Michelle. Um, well, well, I still got you here. Um, what's new and, and upcoming? What What are we looking forward to most this summer? Um, working with Michelle, what have you got cooking uh, in the summer months up at uh, New Jersey? Uh, just a lot of lessons. <laughs> 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 um, Our- nothing, you know, just um, just a lot of privates. I do a lot of privates and a lot of um, not a lot of group, so. On the T, eight hours a day, do, every day. Right. <laughs> wow. Um, and obviously, yeah, I know so you're you're working for not just men but women as well, and and also juniors, correct? Yes, we we try to put the PGA Junior League, which is a real big thing now, and it's I think it's been great for kids all around the country. Um, we just weren't able to get enough kids to to fill the team. So, mm. and a lot of our kids go to camp and they go to sleepaway camp. So we we try to do do camps, but it's just they're off doing all kinds of sleep away and other sports. So yeah, it's, it's at my club it's a little different. It's the, they really want the personal attention, and then I'm just there um, for them. 
Right. Well, very good. Well, Michelle, thank you very much. As always, I appreciate uh, your thoughts and input into the program and, and uh, love having you on as, as uh, one of the guests. And Allison, yeah. what about you? What have you got, uh, what have you got cooking for, uh, for 2016? Well, I've got a pretty busy rest of the year. I've got just on a personal level, a lot of tournaments coming up. Uh, we have our LPGA national championship, mm-hmm. which qualifies the top eight for the 2017 KPMG PGA women's championship. So that'll be coming up in August, but definitely a pretty busy playing schedule with the combination of LPGA events and, and PGA events. And uh, out at my club, you know, very busy with individual lessons, get golf ready groups, and I do have some junior camps over the summer. So anyone who's interested in reaching out and learning with me, um, feel free to visit my website at allisonkurtgolf.com and it'll have a whole listing of uh, things that are going on this summer. And uh, so, yeah, working on my game and and building my business and and working with clients mentally um, throughout the summer to kind of prepare them for high school seasons and collegiate seasons. So very busy, very busy and looking forward to it. Well, fantastic. Ladies, uh, again, thank you very much for both uh, for coming on Golf Talk Live on the Coach's Corner tonight. I I, uh, always enjoy uh, having the both of you on on the show, and uh, I think this is the first time that you guys were on together. But um, uh, I look forward to uh, to next time. So thank you very much, ladies, and and much continued success, and keep doing the great work that both of you are doing. Thank you thanks, so much. Dad, I enjoyed it. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Right. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, that was my very special guest on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, Michelle Tremarchi and Allison Kurt. Uh, both great uh, uh, teacher professionals, and Allison, of course, uh, plays uh, some professional golf as well out on the tours. And uh, you can go to her website, allisonkurtgolf.com, to get, uh, as she said, more information about that. Uh, I'm very honored to have joining me this evening uh, a gentleman who I've, I've uh, had not had the pleasure of meeting as of yet, but uh, have had the pleasure of watching many of his updates uh, through social media. He's a head professional at uh, the Mark Croft Golf uh, uh, Club, and uh, he's also a PGA member of the Southwest section of the PGA of America. Uh, He also teaches out at the Las Barrancas, I believe that's how you pronounce it, golf course in Yuma, Arizona. Uh, And he also hosts a uh, morning radio program as well, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Of course, it's the Desert Southwest Golf Show uh, on AM560 KBLU, which airs live Tuesdays from 8 to 9 a.m. Uh, Mountain Time. And uh, he's got a very interesting story. And, and earlier this year, in February, I believe it was, uh, my very special guest, Mark Croft, uh, waiting for me here, um, had, had uh, I guess, some setbacks. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And, of course, we're going to talk about some golf and what some of the great things that he's doing um, but I thought he had a very interesting story, and I really wanted to, to have him on the show. So uh, without further hesitation, let me bring on my very special guest, Mr. Mark Croft. Good evening, Mark, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Well, thank you, Ted. Thank you for very much for having me. Great uh, you, you coming on. And, and, Mark, I know we talked a little bit, um, you know, uh, I guess a little over a month ago when we were sort of setting this up and, and uh, you, you were certainly very receptive, and, and I appreciate you uh, you coming on the show. And I know you're uh, a busy uh, gentleman, but I want to talk about some things. And, and, and please correct me if I've, I've got the information incorrect, but I, I think I got everything because I got it pretty much from your Facebook page, so forgive me. But um, I know back in, in February this year, um, you had a, a setback. You, in fact, had a heart attack. Uh, and shortly after that, um, 
as a result of a, a septic mass on your, I believe it was your right leg, which caused uh, a lot of damage, um, you, you had to have an amputation. Is that correct? Yes, yes. That wasn't uh, actually the chain of events, but uh, uh, it was, uh, yeah, I lost my leg in uh, in the middle of February, and uh, uh, and this changed things a little bit, you know. <laughs> it's... Uh, it's uh, created some new challenges in life, and uh, but uh, we move forward every day. So, well, one one of the things that really caught my attention, um, well, really two things is, is number one, you you shared obviously um, this story with with a lot of your friends and, and family, and that uh, not just on a personal level, but uh, as I said through through social media, which is you know not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, a lot of times we we try to not put everything out there and and you were very um you know you you did it in such a way that really garnered a lot of support not just from uh, again your own personal friends but from your your facebook and social media friends and also professionals within the golf industry and and i just wanted to what really i guess struck a chord with me was was the fact that your your attitude was towards things was was such a positive and uplifting one that I think really garners some attention. So I just want to, maybe you can kind of walk us through a little bit of, um, of, of what really happened, how it sort of happened. And, uh, and then we'll pick up from there. Sure. Sure. Uh, I started having a tremendous amount of pain in my right leg and, uh, well actually it started about two and a half years ago. And, uh, I was up playing golf in Vancouver, British Columbia. And, uh, uh, felt fine, and the next morning I woke up, and I just had this terrible pain in my right knee and my hip. And uh, when we got back to Yuma, I, I went to a chiropractor, and uh, he straightened it out, and it felt better for a while, but then it just started getting bad again. And over a very short period of time, it started getting worse and worse and worse. And I started going to a multitude of different doctors, and... One doctor would tell me this, the other doctor would tell me that. And in the fall of uh, 2015, uh, I cut my shin, uh, 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 a very, very heavy uh, uh, golf club fitting bag, slipped off the back of a golf cart and hit me right in the shin. And and it started to heal, and it healed, and I... uh, and the scab fell off, and I looked at it. And normally when something like that happens, you just see bare skin or maybe a little bit of redness. But this was just yellow, and I knew immediately that I had a problem. So I went to my doctor, and he says, you've got an infection, and, you know, we're we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It should be, and it just escalated, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. Yeah. And, uh and uh, so uh, eventually uh, the leg had got uh, so septic that it began uh, affecting my entire body and it was affecting my liver, my kidneys, uh, everything. And I eventually had a heart attack uh, because my my body was no longer really pumping blood. It was pumping poison. And uh, right. they put me in the hospital and... Uh, they said, we're really sorry, Mr. Bravo. We've got to amputate your leg. And uh, that was it. And uh, so 
was better that than losing your life, right? I mean, right. So, well, uh, you, you know, the interesting part about it, Mark, and this is, you know, what I was leading to was, you know, many in your position, certainly, um, you know, you're, you're a great golf professional. I've, I've uh, followed uh, many of your postings and that, and you, you've got a great to the game and you've done some great work over the years. And what really caught my eye was just, uh, again, your attitude towards this sort of, you know, uh, uh, this is not uh, a career ender for me. I'm going to, you know, sort of find a way to, to move forward with this. And, and you know, it, it happened. Um, you know, I can't change it. And, you know, for some, as I said, it might be a, even a career ending. Um, but you didn't do that. Um, tell us why. What was your reasoning? What, what, what sort of was sort of flipped the switch, if you will, and said, look, um, this is not the end of Mark Croft. This is a beginning of another journey. Well, that's really a good question. Uh, all my professional career, my commitment has always been to my facility and its members, whether that facility be private, public, uh, who the customers are. I, and I have an undying passion for the game of golf. And uh, uh, so I, I just, I, I had commitments uh when I was in the hospital, uh, I was in the hospital in the middle of February, and that's high season here in the desert. Sure. And uh, I had lessons booked all the way through February and March. And I'm laying in the hospital and talking to my wife, and it's like, man, oh, man, what are we going to do with all these appointments? I mean, uh, I, I just, you know, I we can start calling people. We can start, uh, but, you know, and some I'd already been paid for. And, you know, I knew that we were going to have to reimburse the funds for those. Uh, it was pretty obvious that I wasn't going to be up doing anything. And I wanted to get up and get back at it as fast as possible. I love teaching the game. And the student always comes first. And I'm so fortunate to be married to a wonderful woman for 20 years who understands that and knows that. And... uh and I, I just wanted to get back out of the lesson to you as fast as I could. And, and I didn't have time for interruptions. Uh, right. Even though losing a leg changes a lot of things. I mean, it changes how you eat, how you sleep, how you dress, how you shower, how you drive a car, how you... Uh, but the the real emotional drive was to get up, get better, uh, get the prosthetic, and I didn't even wait for the prosthetic. I came right out of the hospital, and two days later, I was in my wheelchair teaching. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, I just wanted to get back. You know, I, I, I've i just always been driven in that direction. And I wasn't going to allow something like this to alter that direction. I mean, it's something that I've done for the last 40 years of my life, and, and I wasn't going to change it just because of an inconvenience and, and really that's what it is. Uh, if you look at it and accepting the fact that this is the way it's going to be. I mean, I've got a very good friend and, uh, he was an amputee also. And his favorite saying is that, Hey, you're not a lizard. It ain't going to grow back. So you might as well just get used right. to it and figure out how you're going to deal with it. And, uh, so that's what we did from day one. We just figured out how we were going to deal with it. You know, Mark, and that, that's what really makes your story, you know, very inspiring for a lot out there. And, and you and I, <clears throat> excuse me, when we talked on the phone uh, a little while ago, 
you know, I, I mentioned to you that, uh, and I'm going to forward that information to you uh, a little bit later, but um, another gentleman that's been on the show with many of the wounded veterans that are, have come back from uh, overseas from the different uh, uh, operations and that at uh, the storm and, and, uh, and since then. And, of course, many of them are, are in a similar situation you physically now, and he works with a lot of them. Do you see this, what's happened, as a life-changing, obviously, event for you as an opportunity um, to really expand a, a, a great skill set that you already have and be able to work in an area that maybe was not as relatable before, but now you have an, a better understanding of what some of these individuals might be dealing with, and you see an opportunity to expand what you're doing now and, and help some of these uh, uh, individuals be able to, um, you know, and and incorporate this into their game and, and be able to handle things a little bit differently now that you have that absolutely. same scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I in, in a lot of ways, sometimes I look at this as a blessing. I, I really, really do. Um, I, I just, I, I see a tremendous opportunity to reach out to people that uh, maybe don't know the opportunity of golf is there. They're, they they may be afraid that they can't do anything anymore. They they and it's and it's not like that. I mean, I I teach a lot of children, and we have a great in school golf program here at Yuma, and uh, where we actually go into schools and and create golf as a physical education program. And I get the opportunity two or three times a year to address the assembly uh, of the students and. I went into one this year in my wheelchair with one leg and I was there and I started talking about what a great sport golf was and, and how fantastic it was. And I could see every one of these kids, their eyes were just glued on my, on my, on my stump. Right. And I said, guys, golf is for everybody. I can play golf. I got, I've got one leg and I can play golf. I grew up playing basketball and soccer and baseball. And this afternoon, I can't go out and play baseball, soccer, and basketball. But I can go out and play golf. Right. Even with one leg. So anybody can play golf. And I think that, I, I, I think that you know, to deliver the message and grow the game and, and, and really reach out to people that uh, – yeah, I mean it. It is a blessing in, in in a in kind of a different cryptic kind of way, you know. And it's a tremendous opportunity to uh, reach out to to people that uh, that have disabilities of a variety of different kinds. Uh, whether you know a person has Parkinson's or is trying to recover from a stroke or maybe an amputation, like myself. Uh, maybe a child that's autistic, maybe whatever it might be. But the sure. beautiful thing about the game of golf is that not only is it colorblind, but it's ability blind. Anybody can play this game. And uh, I, I think that that's a, a message that a lot of people in the PGA and a lot of people in uh, the USGA and the LPGA uh, are trying to get out to people right now that golf is for everyone. Everyone can play this wonderful game. Just come out and experience it and try it. No matter what you think your handicaps or your disabilities might be, 
this game's for you. Yeah, and I think that's I, I I see that as a tremendous opportunity and a like I said, almost a blessing. You know, Mark, one of the the and you a great uh, great response by the way you hit it right on the head you know golf really mimics life in so many ways there are so many challenges that we face out in the golf course much like the challenges that we face in everyday life and and this really was a challenge um that you had to face uh, in your personal life and you've learned to adapt and overcome and and are able to move on and doing something that you love, obviously, very passionately. And that same thing happens out in the golf course. How many times have we seen even some of the top players, you know, get themselves into a real jam, but they learn to adapt and overcome that, that difficult situation and continue on with the round. They don't say, well, I'm going to pack up and, and go home now because, uh, you know, I haven't got a hope in hell of winning the Masters. Um, they don't. They adapt and they adjust accordingly and continue on until they finish their, their round. And that's really what you're trying to do with golf with these kids is you're trying to get them to learn some life lessons out in the golf course. Well, I, I think that, I think that the biggest thing that, that we have to share as golf professionals, um, especially the kids, especially the juniors is you got to cross the finish line every time. I mean, you yeah. gotta, you gotta cross the finish line and I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how ugly it is. There's always tomorrow. So you finish this up today. Uh, you remember the good things that happened today. We're going to sit down and we're going to talk about things that we need to improve on and how we're going to improve on them and we're going to move forward. So finish and don't worry about it. It's okay. And uh, we'll move forward from there. And I think that that's right. very, very important in life. I think it's important in any sport, not just golf, but any endeavor in life. Some of the most successful people in the world had to fail several times before they ever became a success. And uh, they had setbacks. And I don't care if that's in the business world. I don't care if that's in a, in a marriage. <clears throat> I don't care if it's in athletics. Sometimes... The, the best careers come from often the, the hardest times of, of earning what you've got. And I think that's an important lesson. I think that's a very, very important life lesson. It's not easy. It wasn't supposed right. to be. Right. Exactly. Well said. Um, now, Mark, you also host a, a radio program, uh, as I mentioned, the Desert Southwest uh, Golf Show uh, on Tuesday mm-hmm. mornings on AM 560 KBLU. Uh, and that's Tuesdays, 8 to 9 uh, a.m. Mountain Time. Tell us a little bit about the program, how long you've been doing that, and, uh, and and tell us a little bit of really what your, if you will, I hate to use the word agenda, but what, what do you want listeners to take away? What sort of um, want to take away from your broadcast? Are you referring to uh, the radio show? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we started the radio show uh, three and a half years ago. And uh, we had, uh, I had a radio show back in uh, the late 90s and the early 2000s called uh, uh, Southwest Golf Radio. And uh, I, I got really busy as a uh, general manager of a golf resort here in Yuma, and I just couldn't do the show anymore. And when I left that position and wanted to go and start my own business, uh, the radio station called me back and said, hey, let's let's rekindle that show. So 
we did. And the the whole idea is that that people can get all kinds of information about what's going on in golf, what's going on with the different tours. And I've always wanted to do something different. I've I've always wanted to bring golf right into your living room. Right. Um, I've wanted to be able to bring in people in golf that make things happen, authors, uh, people from the LPGA, people from the PGA, people behind the scenes that you don't read a lot and you don't hear about. But if we didn't have those people, uh, we we wouldn't have a game. The, and uh, we wouldn't have the interest in the game that we have. And so we always kind of aligned our guests around that. And uh, mm-hmm. we have a few tour players on every once in a while, mostly teachers of tour players. Uh, but some of the great guests that we've had on, uh, uh, Carol Mann, Dottie Pepper, yep. Manuel Delatore, uh, just, I mean, on and on and on, just and just absolutely fabulous guests. And in helping our listeners uh, understand and enjoy the game of golf more. It's a great, it's a great show. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You do a great job uh, by the way, Mark. Um, let me, let me ask you, uh, since you mentioned uh, Carol Mann and, and Dottie Pepper, obviously uh, women's golf is, is something that's equally as important to you as, as it is with the juniors. You do a lot of work uh, helping uh, women become better golfers as well. Um, if you were sort of to forecast out uh, over the next few years, uh, where do you see women's golf going and what would you like to see uh, happen in, in uh, women's golf? Not necessarily at the professional level, but in, in golf in general. Well, first off, I absolutely love women's golf. I, I love to teach women. Uh, I, I don't know why. I don't know where that came from. Uh, I was never taught that. Uh, but uh, I just, I, I love women's golf. To be around it, to be involved in it is so much fun. Uh, and it's it's just, it's, it's just fun. I, I, I don't have another way to explain it. I, I don't have the words. It's it's just absolute fun. And uh, I, I see women's golf. Uh, I see the LPGA Tour right now with, more uh, talent on it and deeper talent on it than it's ever, ever had before. Uh, They are putting out such a tremendous product right now. I mean, it's unbelievable how good that product is. We have a great chance here being in the desert uh, with uh, uh, tournaments all over the Palm Spring area. The ladies come to Phoenix. Uh, and and I've been going to those tournaments for years and years and years, and I uh, I, w- I was just uh, at uh, the uh, Women's World uh, up at the old Nabisco, and right. I mean the talent the the talent is just so deep. I mean they're they're just so good. They're so exciting to watch. Uh, and I, I just think that that is really going to catch fire. I was reading a very interesting article uh, today from the National Golf Foundation where junior golf amongst girls uh, has forever been a stagnant number that right. has just hovered around 10 to 12% in the, 
and in the last two and a half years since 2013, it has skyrocketed over 33%. In junior programs around the, around the United States, one out of every three juniors in that program is a girl. And I think that that is just absolutely fantastic. And I think that bodes well for the future of golf. I think that's great for the future of golf and great for the future of women in golf. And I only see that segment of the business growing. Yeah, and I agree with you, Mark. I think something, you know, that they, they've, as you talked about earlier um, in our discussion, you talked about, you know, growing the game. And, and really the two areas that I see that are going to have the growth is going to be in the women's market and the junior market, of course, um, more so than the men's market. And, and you're right, the stats show that the larger growth right now um, is in the women's market over the men's and the percentage wise mm-hmm. is a much greater fast. And I think for two reasons, I think women um, from a, a social aspect, like some of the things that they're seeing um, the accessibility has gotten better for, for women. But I also think that um, from a business standpoint, a lot of women now that are, you know, starting their own businesses uh, are seeing the advantages that of course, to men for years um, of playing golf uh, with prospective clients and and uh, and so forth is that an area that you also try to, to work in as well with women uh, the business business women or executive women um, and encouraging them to you know get out there and, and develop a game so that they can use that as a business tool yes and I I, I see more and more women coming to my lesson tea uh, here in the in the human area. Uh, that are professional women. They're doctors, they're lawyers, uh, maybe their husbands have played, maybe they have other associates at play, but they're taking a greater interest in wanting to play the game. Uh, and uh, I've, I've had tremendous success with, with young junior girls. Uh, I've, I've had a couple of uh, academic All-Americans, uh, college All-Americans uh, that you know, I started working with when they were 10 and 11 years old. And I've, I've just been really blessed, and I don't know why, uh, to be around a tremendous amount of talented young ladies. Uh, and uh, I, I started a tournament uh, at the last facility I was at before I opened up my own business uh, called the Women's Southwest Desert Golf Championships. And I think, and it's still going on. And last year they had 144 players that came from seven different states. Wow! So I, I just, I, I just think that, I just think that women are just discovering the, the tremendous opportunities in golf uh, that lie ahead. Uh, of course, uh, young girls are starting to see the, the scholarship opportunities in golf that are there and they've been there for years and years and years, uh, thousands of unfilled athletic scholarships, uh, going by the way, uh, for women at D one, D two, D three schools. Uh, and to me, the education part is so, so, so important. I mean, if a, if a young child has an Avenue to a great education and, uh, can do it through the game of golf, Oh, Plash, you know, please do it. Please do it. I, I mean, it's a, 
it's the biggest gift that Santa Claus could ever give your family. Yeah. You, know, when you get school, you get books, you get bored, you get, I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, your mom and dad are, and, and you, you know, no college loans, no student loans. We see kids coming out of school today with, with different degrees that have 50, 60, 70, sometimes even $150,000 in student debt. Yeah, you know, which uh, it, you know, it, and the opportunities uh, that that flow through the River of Goff are, are just absolutely unbelievable, and I think people are just finally just starting to discover them, and and that's what's creating a lot of interest. You know, the other thing, Mark, too, um, you know, in addition to this evening show, I I, um, I host a, another show in the mornings called The Women of Golf with uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller, who I know you know as well. <laughs> Yes, and, of course. Um, you know, Cindy and I have had the pleasure of, of interviewing many, uh, you know, members. Uh, we've also had uh, Carol Mann in our program. Uh, we also had actually our very first uh, uh, female guest that we had was Kathy Whitworth. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, talk about, talk about a legend, you know, in, in itself. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that Cindy and I have talked about a little bit on the program, and, and I'm sure you've noticed in, in your uh, endeavors uh, working with women, uh, in golf is that they're especially at the professional level, they are all about giving back. When you when you look at Nancy Lopez, the Carol Manns, and and uh, so on and so forth, it's all about giving back. It, you know they've had prom- uh, you know phenomenal careers on the LPJ. They're now on the Legends Tour, um, but they're always looking for ways to give back um, to the to their communities uh, through charity events, to all sorts of things. Um, that's certainly a testament to, to women's golf. And, you know, it, it's just a, a testament, if you will, to, to where the, the, the leadership is in the LPJ as well. I think that's why they've been so successful over these last few years in really building uh, a formidable brand. And I think that's, uh, that's uh, really to do with all of the, the great women on the LPJ tour and uh, the LPJ teaching uh, profession as well. I agree. I, I, you know, I hope no one thinks this is a sexist comment, but <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I just think that's in their DNA. I mean, I yeah. mean, you know, they're just women in general are just some of the most kindest, most gracious, most giving people in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you look back at the founders and, and, you know, how they had to start their own tour, what they had to do, everything that they had to go through. Uh, I, I just, I, I just can't have anything but an undying respect for them. Uh, I mean, they're, they, they've, they have carved a trail in a man's world against every amount of resistance that you can come yeah. up with. And they have never give up. They have always moved forward. And I, I just, I, I just think it's absolutely fantastic. And and Carol Mann and I have become very, very good friends. And uh, in fact, she's going to be on our show next Tuesday, along with uh, Kathy uh, Gildersleeve Jensen. Uh, right. You know, we're doing a we're doing a, a piece on Women's International Golf Day. But uh, they're just. You know, I mean, Dottie Pepper, Nancy Lopez, Kathy Whitworth, and you can just go on and on and on. And even some of these new young stars that are coming up today, they're more than willing to get in front of the TV camera and, and more than willing to, 
you know, walk through the, the crowds and especially reach out to the kids and with autographs. And, and I just think it's absolutely fantastic. I, 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 I think the PGA is, or I'm sorry, the LPGA has, has just been run over and not a paid, paid attention to for way too long. And, uh, I, I think Juan is doing a great job. Right. And I, I just hope them just the, you know, the utmost success in the world. I, I love the LPGA tour. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I, and I like the you know, one thing that, that, you know, I enjoy about the LPJ tour and, and also I'm going to, you know, throw in the Symmetra tour, which of course is the, the feeder tour, if you will, to the, to the, um, to the regular Correct. tour. But, um, you know, is there such a diversity, even more so than the men's tour, uh, of players from all over the world? I mean, every, you know, virtually every nationality is represented on the LPJ tour. Um, you mm-hmm. know, not just the, the players on, on, uh, from the United States, but from literally all corners of the, of the world. And, the one thing we, uh, Cindy and I have interviewed a number of uh, not only LPJ but Symmetra Tour players as well here over the last uh, year or so. And the one thing that's very interesting about talking to them is, you know, they don't get into talking about their endorsements. They don't. Talk, they talk about the passion of the game, how much they enjoy it. The focus that they have is just unbelievable. Um, and just the willingness to just get out there and give it their best and compete at the highest level. Um <laughs> And the admiration that they have for players like a Carol Mann and a Kathy Whitworth, Nancy Lopez, and, and on and on. Um, it's just amazing, um, you know, Mark, just the, the, the efforts that they're willing to put in and the hard work that they're willing to put in to not just develop their own careers, but to develop the brand of the LPJ Tour. Mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%. Uh, the work ethic is... Uh, is is just so much so much greater so much higher uh than you see in other other golfers i'm I'm not going to try to brand or put a label on anybody but the commitment is just absolutely unbelievable i had a young girl here in yuma very very successful career uh played in Oh, I think six different USGA events. Uh, I mean, in the actual events, not in qualifiers, but went through the qualifiers and played in the events. And uh, it would be 114 degrees at three o'clock in the afternoon, and we have a we have a playing lesson set up. And I'd call her up and I say, you "Sure, you want to go today?" And she goes, "Yeah, I'm on my way to the course now." I mean, uh, the commitment was just. You know, absolutely unbelievable, and uh, I, I like I said, I really have to take it off my my hat off to these uh, to these cows today that uh, that are out there. But I think that same work ethic and that same drive has existed throughout the LPGA Tour for a long, long time, and that's why why they got to where they got to. They didn't get there because of money, uh, no. and they certainly didn't get there because of some great promotional ideas. I mean, they built their own brand. Right. And uh, I, I just, I, I just I can't admire those people enough. Like I said, they, they took on uh, a very, very difficult endeavor in what was considered a man's world, uh, even back from the roaring 20s going forward. Uh, and uh, when women weren't even allowed on the golf course. Right. And and yet uh, 
some way, somehow, they found a way to, like I say, carve their own path. And uh, it's uh, it's a great story. And, and, and like I said, right now, it's a fantastic product. And I don't see that product doing anything but getting better. I really don't. Yeah, you're 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 right. I think um I think you hit it right on the head again. I think that you know these ladies are are determined and you know what what I really like think the best is that so many of these of the LBJ tour that are still not just out there playing but they're involved and immersed in helping the next generation you know come up and they're not you know they're competitive still but they're not so competitive that, well, I'm not going to help so-and-so or I'm not going to help this person over here. They're very immersed in, in helping to, to continue to develop uh, not only the LPGA brand, but also getting these young junior girls involved and getting them out there um, because it, it does develop such a, a great work ethic. You know, Mark, something I want to talk to you because you, you work with juniors as well, and you mentioned something about uh, having an, an in-school program, and there seems to be more and more of that happening. But I'd like to see it even get bigger on a national basis. What do you think needs to happen to get golf in like other sports are uh, in, in most of the school systems, you know, whether it be baseball, football, or what have you, what's it going to take and, and what should or shouldn't the tour do um, to really get its foot into, into the door more, not just at the collegiate level, but even, even at a junior level uh, in, in some of the middle schools and, and beyond. Um, what do we do about getting golf more involved in the school system? Well, our program uh, is K through five. And uh, we, we, uh, we saw a thousand kids this year. And the whole idea was to create a program in our school district where golf was taught as a physical education sport for a five to six week period. And uh, we supplied all the uh, equipment, balls, everything, uh, learning manuals, everything uh, to the school district at no charge. And there was no charge to the student, no charge to the parent. And for six weeks, uh, the kids took off. They, they could do basketball or football or whatever they wanted to do at recess. But for that six-week period, it was just golf. And then for the next six-week period, they did whatever and then whatever and then whatever. But they committed to us a six-week period uh, inside their grade schools where they would do uh, nothing but teach the game of golf. And if we're going to grow the game and we're going to grow the future of the game, we have to give parents and children the opportunity to choose golf. And that's never right. been done before. That's right. never, ever been done before. And there are some guys in, in, in this country, I mean, Matt Murdoch, John Layton, there's some guys in this country and some women in this country that are just doing a fantastic job with it, but there's not enough of us. And if every PGA and LPGA professional would just say, I'm going to take one elementary school, not, yeah. not two or three or four. There's 25,000 of us in the PGA. That's 25,000 elementary schools yeah. from, from the East Coast to the West Coast. If every single member would just say, okay, 
I'm going to take one elementary school. We would introduce over a million and a half kids to the game of golf in less than a year. Because I think yeah. if we're going to grow and we're going to have a future, that's where <clears throat> we're going to grow it, and that's where the future is going to be. Uh, yeah. I really do. And we've we've got to get golf on the we got to get golf on the dinner table and make it a conversation when little Johnny or little Susie, okay, what are we going to do? They're seven years old. Should we put them in swimming? <laughs> Should we put them in soccer? Should we put them in basketball? Should we put them in baseball? Oh, wait a minute. There's, there's golf here. Mm. Oh, wait, well, well, you know, I've never seen golf offered before. You know, let's think about that. And if they're just introduced to it and they can make their own choice, I mean, but at least introduce it to them. And I think that's so, 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 so important. And uh, we've got some great people in this country. Uh, Phil Green out in the Sacramento, right. California area. <clears throat> He's just doing a phenomenal job. And, uh, you know, we've, we've just got some people, but it's not enough of us. We need all of us involved. That's, that's yeah, my feeling. Yeah, and, and you're exactly right. And I think... You know, one of the things that I've noticed is that there are certainly many, many um, junior golf programs in the country, but most of them, and certainly not all of them, but most of them are geared for um, developing, you know, new players that eventually will make it into not necessarily the PGA, but make it through the tour system uh, on some fashion. But there's really not an element out there other than, as you said, you know, here and there, pockets of it that is introducing uh, kids in general and I see the next evolution of golf um, being not just juniors and women but family golf as more women get involved yes, I agree they're gonna they're gonna want the family you know right now it was you know traditionally it's been the husband out playing and you know a handful of women um, now you're seeing more women and usually where the women go the children will follow um, absolutely. And, absolutely and I can you know I can see really the industry booming um, in a, in a family golf, when, you know, families go on vacation, golf is going to be uh, a consideration for, for something to do. Um, it's not just all about hanging Absolutely. around Disney, you know, hanging on Disney and going to the things. So the, the younger that, like you said, the younger that we can introduce golf to them and give it as an option and then let them make the choice. Um, it's a numbers game, the more people it gets in front of. And I think the problem is the only identification that most people have with golf is outside the school system and it's on the professional tours. And most people look at that, and that's a great exposure. But most people look at it and say, you know, I'm I'm not good enough, or I'm never going to be able to make it on the tour. And they don't see it as a viable um, social uh, element, and they don't see it as a business tool. They look at it strictly as uh, an elite sport that's a, a designed for people that want to play at the highest level. Well, that's not true. You and I know that. Um, that's just one small aspect of golf in general. Um, you know, there's so many other things. And I see, as you, as you do, I see that getting it into the school system. So going back to my question, um, uh, certainly a start with the PGA and LPGA uh, teacher professionals, you know, grappling on to that. But is it something that maybe through the help of the tours uh, and the PGA of America, going after the corporations and saying, look, here's an opportunity for you guys, because we know golf is, is um, very well rooted uh, in, in business, getting them to pony up some money and saying, look, we need your help here to, to get this into the system. Is that something as well that needs to be done, do you think? 
Mm. You or know, is it yes better to no. leave them out? Is it better I, not to, leave, to them necessarily out? leave them out. I, I, I think the best thing is to say, okay, that's the next stage, or, or that's right. the third stage. But the first thing we got to do is create a program. Not go in and sell some blue sky idea, but right. to go in with hard data and say, okay, we introduced 300,000 brand new kids between the age of 7 and 10 to the game of golf this year. Now, not only did we introduce them, but you bring up a very, very important point, Ted, is we introduced the family. Because you right. don't have to bring that 7- and 10-year-old to the golf course, mom or dad. And mom right. or dad have a definite interest in what their child's doing. <clears throat> and so sure. they're standing there and they're watching. And uh, one of the programs that we have here uh, through our junior program, and we coordinate throughout the city of Yuma, but we have a parent junior golf tournament at the end of our junior season, which is usually in the middle of uh, July. It's very hot then, but people right. are used to it here. And we invite <laughs> the parents out. And, 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 and we tell the parents, I don't care if you've never, ever played a round of golf in your life. We got rental clubs for you, and we're going to give them to you. Or use your little kids' clubs. It doesn't matter. You know, you've been watching them for three and a half right. months. Enjoy this game. Come out and enjoy it with them. Because you know something? You go to a baseball game, you can sit in the bleachers, but you can never participate. You go to a soccer game, the same thing. Football, whatever it might be. This is the right. only game where you can actually get on the field with your child and participate and embellish that and enjoy right. that. And and that's what I mean by I think it's got to be – I think it's got to go all the way down to the level of the golf professional. And it, like I said earlier, if every PGA member, if every LPGA member would just say, okay, I'm taking one school, and it's the one that's three blocks from my house, and I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk to the principal and I'm going to talk to the physical education teacher – and I'm going to get a golf program started here. Uh, if if I just did that, and and everybody else in our organization did that, we would have so many kids coming out to the golf course, we wouldn't know what to do with them all. And and we can reach out to corporate money and all that, but I don't think that's the first ring in the ladder. I I think that I I think that it's it's up to the P. These things have become great and fantastic always start at the grassroots level. And I think that if each and every one of us just chose, like I said, one elementary school, uh, we'd we'd be a millennium ahead in in just a very, very short time. Just imagine, you know, how that would would grow uh, when one physical education teacher is talking to another one and says, hey, have you got a golf program? My kids love it. They're doing great. That's another way I didn't have to teach soccer. That's another way I didn't have to figure out baseball. I was able to get rid of the horseshoes. I was yeah. whatever a, a physical education teacher is being confronted with. This gives them another opportunity. So they're very, very open to it and very welcoming to it too. So 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that all the money and all that is fantastic, but you got to have something that has numbers that that you've got a proven track record, and then I think that would bring in a lot more corporate money, a lot more sure. corporate money. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it would as well. And you know, the interesting thing too, you you raised a, a kind of a an interesting point uh, with parents being involved, but it also to grandparents. You know, uh, as you said, most other sports can't or whatever you baseball field with their child on the golf course. Well, grandparents as well. This is a great way for them, um, you know, to be able to get with their involved in a sport. Um, some of the other sports are a little bit more challenging as we get older, um, you know, to be able to play it. Again, another avenue that brings in the extended family, grandparents involved as well. So there's, you know, it really literally can become a family affair. But you're right, it has to start at a grassroots level. Yeah, yeah, and the younger, the younger that we can get the kids involved, the greater opportunity we have of getting the parents involved. And, uh, and and that's the key because the parents have the money. The parents have, yeah. I, the the parents are going to drive. The parents are going to get the child there. And you've got to get the commitment of the parent. You have to. You yeah. you don't have a choice. Uh, you're not going to be successful if you don't. And uh, you make it affordable. Uh, I don't necessarily say it has to be free, but you make it very very affordable so anyone can do it. And. Uh, uh, I, you know, does it mean a lot of volunteer hours and doesn't, yeah, yeah. But doctors do pro bono work, so do attorneys, so do, you know, why can't golf professionals? You know, if I got to, if I got to dump 10 or 15 hours of my week into something that I'm probably not going to get paid for, you know, it's, it's my responsibility to the game to do that. Yeah. It can't I, be I, about me. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and, and again, that's another interesting point, too, because, you know, what people don't realize is by giving that time now, it's going to come back, whether it's to you or it's to the other professionals as well. Because as those children develop an interest in the, in the sport, um, as they get a little bit older and they get out uh, and, and want to take lessons, then that's where you're going to be able to grow um, the business side of things. But, yeah, you're right. They have to at least understand what's available to them first um, before they take that next step. And that's something that has been lacking um, for many, many years in the education system is the accessibility like other sports have. And I, I think what you're yeah, doing I was, you must, right? Go well, ahead. I, you know, and it's not just what I'm doing, but it is what guys are doing all over the United States and, and, and and girl and women are doing all over the United States as well. And you know we've got people now starting to do it in adaptive golf. Uh, we've got people, and it's just golf is the greatest game in the world, and you can play it for uh, your whole life, and yep. you can play it with disabilities. You can play it if you're blind. Yep. I mean there. There are so many things that the game of golf offers that are so positive. And until we go out and reach out to the masses and share that with them, they're going to have the same jaded idea that you spoke about earlier. Yeah. The only thing that they know about golf 
is that it's on TV on Saturday and Sunday, and guys make millions of dollars playing. You know, and yeah, I, they're almost all white. Yeah, and it, it's 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 perceived as an untouchable sport by the masses. You're right; yes. it has to be affordable. You know, somebody raised an interesting point to me. Um, you know, in comparison, to golf to tennis. And they said, well, one of the reasons why I play tennis is I can go to, you know, my local sporting goods store and pick up a racket for $15 and a sleeve of three tennis balls for another few dollars. So for basically $25, I can go out and play tennis. Um, golf, yeah, I can go I to my local that. park and play on the local courts for no charge. Right, exactly. And, and golf, certainly, you know, I, I know you're, you're dealing with a different uh, fish, if you will, but essentially we have to make it accessible as well because if it if it's perceived as an overly expensive sport uh or an elitist sport as you suggested the general population is is not going to to want to do that so you're right we have to no. bring it to a level that everybody can do it and then whatever level they choose to pursue later on then that's up to the individual as you said the choices that they choose to make whether they want to you know uh play collegiately and and then you know, per, perhaps uh, filter through one of the, the junior programs, and then eventually maybe on tour if they're if they're successful enough. But the choice should be theirs. And right now, uh, you know, other than as I said, a handful of programs, there's really not a lot of choice right now um, being made. So we have to find a way to to give them that option. Right. No, right. I agree with you 100%. I I just think that. You know, going back to, you know, I was a baseball player when I grew up as a kid. I didn't discover golf until I was in my 20s. But, uh, you know, there was a limitation on the time that I could play baseball. There's a limitation on on every professional sport. You you get into your 30s and 40s, I don't, I, I don't care what sport you're in, you're old. You're done. Yeah. You're finished. You're over the hill. Yeah. You know, yeah. golf, you're just taking your second wind in, at forty yeah. degree uh, at forty years old. Sure. And and I but a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't understand that. And I think that is the responsibility of the local golf professional, whether a PGA or LPGA member, that <clears throat> that becomes our responsibility community. I mean, golf has given so much to me. Right. I can't go out and, and out of 10 or 15 or maybe 20 hours a week, I can't give something back. Right. I mean, no, no, no. It, it, if it's going to be good for everybody, then it's got to be equitable. And, and, and I think that we need more of that kind of an attitude, and, and a lot of guys have it, uh, and a yeah. lot of women have it. And there are a lot of people out there working that nobody's ever heard of. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody ever says thank you to them. But, you know, I thank them from the bottom of my heart. Because the most important thing that I have as a golf professional is to leaving this game in the best hands that I can and making sure that I leave the game whenever I leave it. And when I leave the sport, when I leave the profession, it's as in good as or better shape than when I got here. That's my job as a golf professional. That's my job. Well, Mark, um, I, I don't think I could have put it in, in better words than what you did, and, and um, uh, what a great way to, to end the segment. Um, 
Mark, I, w- I want to thank you very much for joining me on Golf Talk Live. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and uh, you're, you're welcome to come back anytime, and, uh, and we can engage in, in some further discussion. And hopefully, we can be talking about all the elementary schools that golf is now in um, in our discussion. Um, but thank that you very much for joining me. That would be fantastic. Yeah, thank that you very much. Fantastic. for Ted, thank you for, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you for sharing your story. And, and, you know, this is, as I said earlier, what really caught my eye was the fact that, you know, despite um, some adversity that, and challenges that you've had here of late, um, you've, you've risen well above it and you've shown really that you are a true professional uh, and a gentleman and somebody who just believes that uh, never giving up and, and pursuing um, the dreams and aspirations that you've had. And, and I know you're going to continue to do some great work. So, Mark, uh, thank you very much. Much continued uh, success with Mark Croft Golf, and uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and um, and if you want to come on the show again, I'd love to have you. All right, thank you so much, Ted. I appreciate it, and thank you for having me. And and uh, I'm going to have you on my show here very soon. Well, I appreciate. it. I'd love to do that. Uh, we'll flip the table, as they say, and you can interview me. I'd love that. Mark, thank you very much. You have Excellent. a great week, and keep doing the great work. All right, Ted. Thank you. Take care. You're very welcome. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest, Mark Croft from Mark Croft Golf uh, in the uh, southwestern part of the United States, out in Yuma, Arizona. Um, just a great uh, a great gentleman, as I mentioned earlier, um, has met some uh, challenges here lately, but has risen above it like a true champion and uh, wants to continue to help grow this game, as so many of us do. So uh, I want to thank Mark for coming on the show tonight, and uh, I would love uh, certainly to do his show uh, sometime in the near future. Um, On behalf of uh, all of the sponsors and and, uh, supporters of the program, I want to thank each and every one of you, uh, the listeners for worldwide, for faithfully tuning into Golf Talk Live each and every week. And it's really, uh, I do have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches and teach professionals uh, like Mark and uh, Michelle Tremarchi and, and Allison Kurt, uh, as well as some authors and entrepreneurs stop by the show. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. And on behalf of some of the sponsors and supporters, Mr. Jonathan Laird of South Coast Golf Guide, thank you, Jonathan, for all of your continued support of the show. Uh, if you're interested in getting a copy of the uh, South Coast Golf Guide, is a publication that Jonathan produces uh, and edits. Uh, you can uh, reach him at uh, jonathan at southcoastgolfguide.com or you can just go to southcoastgolfguide.com and uh, order your copy or request a copy be sent to you if you're not here in the southeastern part of the United States. It's a great publication covering many of the great uh, courses here in the southeastern part of the United States from literally from Texas right over here to uh, Florida uh, for all the great work you do. Meredith Kirk from Meredith Kirk Golf, thank you. Litherland, thank you for helping spread the word. And Mr. Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf. Uh, go to onticgolf.com. Great line of customized putters. Uh, Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you very much. Remember, uh, tune in to Golf Talk Live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Central right here on the blogtalkradio.com network. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. God bless, and I will see you next week here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you. <laughs>